Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. A little background information relevant to understanding this podcast. Uh, in July of 2019, Art Market Monitor was sold to Penske Media and included in a new division alongside Art News and Art in America. On September 10th, 2019, at the Core Club in New York City, we got together to discuss the new direction of Art in America and its redesign. In this podcast, Art in America's editor-in-chief, William Smith, talks about the redesign, some of his favorite new features, the launch of two newsletters, one featuring daily reviews from the magazine's critics, another on the subject of art and technology, Theastrogate's portfolio, and an essay on the artist Cause by William Smith. I think it's really extraordinary to think about doing a print redesign at all. Um, we're in a media environment today where magazines are supposed to be closing, laying people off, shrinking, pivoting to video, um, whatever else, but print. Um, so I think uh, it's kind of against the grain, let's say, for uh, Penske Media to have invested substantial resources into improving Art in America as a print product. Um, it's essentially doubling down on the magazine's historic identity. Uh, and when we were originally brainstorming what this redesign should be, um, I was thinking about three different audiences and three different sets of needs that had to go together. Um, the first audience, and probably at the end of the day, the primary one from my position uh, is, is artists. Um, and I know that sounds a little bit idealistic or naive, but I really feel like if we center artists in the discussion, and this is a publication that's relevant for them, that makes their work look good, um, everything else falls into place. Um, and the primary importance to artists, I think, is, is image quality. Um, and this is why a print publication can still exist within the art world, um, because it's a publication designed for people who are highly sensitive to um, quality levels in image making. Um, so as part of that, that's where the, the paper comes in. We're working with a new printer now, um, and I think the results are really spectacular. Um, the reproductions look fantastic, uh, and I've already gotten some feedback from artists saying that they can really engage with this more. Um, occasionally I'll hear from uh, art teachers as well, who are artists themselves, uh, and there's kind of a classic assignment, especially in high school and elementary school art classes where um, they give their students copies of Art in America and other art publications and ask them to cut things up and make collages, you know. Um, and I think if we're, <laughs> I think if we can fulfill that part of um, our mission uh, to be cut up by children, um, we're also doing something right. They also need to buy 10 magazines to do that. Exactly, so. yeah. I mean, honestly, whatever you do after you buy the magazine, that's fine. You want to use it as a nice-looking coaster, go right ahead. The, the second um, important audience uh, is the readers, so um, people like you. Uh, we wanted the magazine uh, to be appealing in a new way. Um, we're publishing some material that you're not going to find a lot of other places, and especially material that you're not going to find as part of your everyday digital diet. Um, I'm talking about long-form art criticism. Um, it's asking a lot of our readers to dig into a 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 word article about an artist. 
Uh, and so we want that experience to be totally fulfilling as well on the level of an immersive experience. So if we're saying, hey, spend a half an hour with this piece, we want it to be able to deliver on an aesthetic level and have um, a design quality that is going to help you stay focused throughout. I think it's also important that the print product be a very distinctive experience from what you could find on the web. Uh, we want to make this distinction absolutely clear that this isn't just web material translated into print, but that the print object itself has its own life and logic behind it. Um, and I think that's where some of these redesign elements come through. We're really thinking about this as an experience of engaging with the printed page on all sorts of different levels. Um, so choose for me one of those new features. Aside from the, the main features in the magazine, one of the big aspects of this redesign is a, a heavily designed uh, front of the book section and you've got a couple of new uh, elements there. And uh, you know, I don't want you to go through every last one, yeah. of them, but if you can you know, sort of talk about your favorite one uh, for a minute to give people an idea of what's uh, uh, new. Yeah, we, um, we came up with some new column formats that are going to be recurring um, from issue to issue. Uh, and one that's probably my favorite um, is like an ethics column um, called Hard Truths, uh, which is meant to be like an advice column for the art world. And we all know you get into some pretty thorny ethical situations from time to time. Uh, and we have uh, Howie Chen and Andy Lampert here to guide us through. Uh, so it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, a little bit knowing, but um, I think it's a part of the magazine that uh, people are going to really love going forward. Um, yeah, a lighter touch as well. I mean, we're not only publishing like really dense 4,000-word stories. We're, we're having fun, too, I think, right? So, so switching from the magazine experience that can only be had in the magazine, you're also trying to rethink a little bit how you engage with uh, artists and their shows and make the uh, critical response to that more immediate. Can you explain a little bit about how that's going to work? Yeah, I mean, one of the distinctive features of Art in America is that we have a pretty substantial exhibition review section. Um, and we're one of the few publications that can provide independent critical assessments of contemporary art as it's on display. Um, we don't have um, conflicts of interest trying to sell anyone anything. We're not an auction house or anything like that. Um, so we really want to emphasize this aspect of the magazine. One trade-off when you're working in print is that you can't be up to the minute as you can online. Um, so if you look at our back of book review section over the years, uh, you know, the shows are mostly closed by the time they're coming out in print. There's a lot of value there, especially to people outside New York. Um, it's about establishing a historical record and about giving artists some considered feedback, not just a quick response. Um, but we also want to speed things up a little bit as well. Um, so I think our back of book review section is going to be going forward a kind of compilation of the most important and timeliest responses that we're able to deliver to people in different ways. Um, online maybe, but also through some new, uh, a new email newsletter that we just launched called The Daily Review. You should all sign up. Um, it's, uh, it's a review every uh, workday uh, delivered right to your inbox in the morning. Um, and this is going to be, I think, a great way for us to engage with artists and readers uh, in a much more timely 
direct way. So we can be sort of present uh, for everyone all the time. So to um, close out the review section, uh, or, or the newsletter section of uh, our conversation, you've also launched a newsletter about art and technology. Uh, and uh, just give us a, a, a little sense of where that came from and what it's uh, uh, supposed to accomplish. Um, yeah, so the, this newsletter is called The Program. Uh, it's a weekly, and I hope you'll sign up for this as well. It's convenient to do on our website. Um, and it is an outgrowth of um, a content area that we've really been specializing in over the last five or six years. And really, Art in America has a long historic legacy of engaging with questions of the relationship between art and technology, going back to the really the 50s and 60s. So we wanted to highlight this somehow. And what we're offering is um, a compilation of articles we've published, new material just for the newsletter, and then also surveys of some of the most important stories and events that are going on around the web and around the world. So um, in the current issue, I see someone flipping through it right now. Uh, oh, yeah. There, look, it's on the screen now. There so, we go. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's perfect. But behind me is the cover, which has a um, work by Theaster Gates that comes from the portfolio section. And uh, Will, I'm wondering if you could just give us a little bit of uh, background on how that came about and what um, the significance of uh, the work is. So we knew we were launching a redesign of the publication in September. So I thought it would be interesting to try to work with an artist whose work is deeply engaged with some aspect of publishing. Um, and Theaster Gates came to mind immediately, um, in part because he's been working with the archives of the Johnson Publishing Company um, for quite a long time. Um, and so he's had exhibitions uh, related to this material. Um, and he's produced collages um, like the one you see on the cover, um, dealing with photo archives of imagery that originally appeared in Ebony, Jet, or other, other publications that uh, Johnson owned. Um, if you're not familiar with Johnson, it was probably, it's one of the most important um, uh, African-American publishing companies uh, in the United States, really defining an image of African-American life uh, in mid-20th century America. Uh, and in many ways, this was uh, an aspirational image as well. This is what the middle class was meant to look like. Um, part of Theaster's project for this issue involves pairing images from the Johnson Archive that he's been working with, with actually infographics uh, that had been produced um, earlier in the 20th century, at the beginning of the 20th century, by W.E.B. Dubois. Um, and both of these, the infographic and the uh, Johnson Publishing Archives, were for Theaster images of what black progress looked like in America at different periods of time. Um, and he produced a wonderful statement explaining these connections for us as part of this um, specific print-only portfolio project. And just about when you were doing this project, the um, Johnson Photo Archive, which have been separated from, someone now owns Ebony and Jet, but in the process, the actual photo archive had become separated from the magazines themselves. Uh, and that uh, went up for sale uh, in Chicago, uh, was it mid-July, uh, uh, early August, uh, uh, during a fairly fraught, as if there's any time that's not fraught in our current uh, 
sort of cultural, political uh, moment, but a, a fairly fraught moment uh, during uh, the period when there was a lot of uh, focus on the president's comments about uh, uh, Baltimore. Uh, do you, do we have a sense of Gates's? Uh, you know, was he engaged in that? Was that sort of just background noise to to all of this? Well, he has a very complex and nuanced relationship with this archive. That's probably um, too difficult to get into here. I think um, he was involved in the bidding process uh, on this, uh, which would be apart from the images that had been licensed to him previously. Um, but I think that tremendous sale. Uh, which ultimately went to a consortium of different archives um, anchored and by the and museums anchored by the Smithsonian. Um, it's just a testament to the importance of this material. Um, and Theaster was really prescient, I think, about recognizing this importance and working on it as a key part of his practice for so long. Right, and the, the archive eventually was sold for $30 million to this consortium uh, who seemed as much concerned with preserving the archive as also establishing a sense of its, um, a public sense of its value separate from its scholarly and cultural value, which is uh, an interesting comment on, on our, our times in, in sort of both directions, uh, uh, if you will. Um, I also, while we have you, you wrote a, a, an essay uh, on the artist's cause in this issue. Uh, and I wanted to see if you could give us um, a little bit of background of the context of that. Why don't you save your ultimate uh, uh, determination of, uh, well, you know, critical determination of what you think of cause to the end. <laughs> but you, you talk about the long 1990s, and I wonder if you could, uh, you know, give us a little more expansion on that here. Sure. Um, yeah, I think the article just posted online this morning. Um, I really wanted to write something myself for the redesign issue. And I was fascinated by this artist, not because um, I had special affection for his work, but I was curious about the context that allowed this work to become um, so central to, um, to the art world and caused so much discomfort in, in some people. Um, so I, I did some research and dug in and, and really went back to the roots of what Cause was doing um, as a street artist in the 1990s um, and looked at this context um, around street art as it was becoming affiliated with luxury goods, um, as it was becoming sort of depoliticized um, with sort of middle class people taking it on as an important aesthetic outlet, um, and also how it related to certain aestheticized political movements at that time, particularly around the publication Adbusters. Um, and uh, so for me, the long 1990s, um, is meant to signify how some of the conversations around this moment um, are still with us today and how some of the most formative cultural and political experiences we have have their roots um, right there um, in, in what these artists and publications were doing. So cause provokes um, some ferocious uh, responses from people, uh, often visceral, uh, about whether he's an artist, uh, whether he's a successful uh, uh, artist, about his imagery and so forth. But you make a comparison, um, maybe not even a comparison, but a connection between Cause and Takashi Murakami, who is a very interesting artist in that he does many similar things, but probably comes at it from almost the opposite direction. I was wondering, could you sort of give us a little bit of a, 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 a pro and con on the two artists? 
Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because they both were working in the same time and same place. Cause um, spent quite a lot of time in Tokyo um, at the just the turn of the millennium, at exactly the moment when Murakami was producing some of the major works around uh, his Superflat Manifesto and curating exhibitions on that theme. What I found remarkable was, is despite I think some obvious surface formal similarities between their two bodies of work, they don't really interact much at all. Um, and in fact, uh, Murakami is coming from a completely different place that's grounded in an in-depth anthropological scholarly study of Japanese history and culture and subcultures. Um, whereas with Cause's work, it's almost just literally the surface level approach to popular culture. Um, and so, I mean, ultimately my critique of him is that he doesn't go deep enough into the pop culture references that he's working with, um, unlike Murakami, who has this incredibly rich body of work um, as a student of popular culture. Well, and related to uh, the otaku, the subculture of people exactly. who are obsessed with and identify with mm -hmm. uh, uh, popular culture, right? Uh, but for Mur Murakami, that's a highly traumatic experience, uh, and that uh, basically he, he considers himself to be piecing together the elements of Japan's World War II trauma um, by looking at these different images. And there's simply nothing comparable um, in Cause's work, uh, even though he's essentially peddling all of these images of, of death and exhaustion. So, speaking of death and exhaustion, what... Uh, Are you exhausted? <laughs> what, what do you... Um, uh, Sort of feel that uh, Cause's position is a, as an artist. He, he, you know, Murakami created many toys and other objects, mm -hmm. uh, f almost as descendants from his, uh, 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 you know, fine artwork. Uh, Cause sort of came up from having created all these objects that became collectible items that generated a market for his work that eventually, only recently, sprang up into the this extraordinary market for his paintings, which until recently the paintings were sort of, uh, uh, you know, a, a vanity project of his, his mm -hmm. far removed from why people uh, uh, esteemed him and followed him uh, and all. Uh, and even though there there continue to be these record-setting numbers, and this um, in a few weeks in Hong Kong there'll be another big uh, cause painting for sa sale that uh, is meant to uh, already have a sort of eight million dollar guarantee uh, uh, on it. I don't think it's at all settled among people what. Uh, uh, cause is. Is he a, a toy maker who happens mm -hmm. to paint? Not that different from we've now got plenty of um, filmmakers and actors and uh, musicians who also uh, uh, paint. Or is he a painter who happened to have made um, uh, toys and pop culture uh, objects? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think that's a really interesting question and um, there isn't a simple answer precisely because I think his work scrambles a lot of these distinctions and binaries and categories um, in ways that are probably a little unhealthy. I mean, one of the reasons why I wrote this article is that I, I looked at the material that existed and there were sort of two ways of going about it. One, you could write an article about Cause just celebrating what he was doing, uh, or from an art historical perspective, you could contextualize it within like pop art or even situationist kind of critical art. Um, but really trying to meld those two worlds, no one had done that quite yet. Um, 
so what I tried to write is something that was a little bit truer to the scrambling that happens in his own work. Do you have any clues as to why he, you know, gets people so worked up? Well, I, I think um, you mean in terms of excited to buy his work and uh, no, I or, or just. <laughs> Furious at the fact that it, uh, uh, someone bought them. I mean, it's 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 kind of fascinating. The uh, as you just said, there are plenty of historical examples mm -hmm. that you can point to. There are plenty of people who've done very similar things to what he's done. He's not yeah. exactly. I think you even say this in the piece. He's not really a groundbreaking artist. He's another iteration of several different with different imagery that he draws from, but still following very similar uh, patterns. So it's nothing to get. Uh, angry about, and yet when, when these things sell, people go, you know, they're, they're screaming and yelling. Uh, I believe someone uh, wrote an article online, that's not art, you know, right. sort of furious at it. Well, I think there's an expectation um, that artwork has to have a critical dimension to it, um, and especially artwork that's using pop culture imagery. Uh, if that's in a gallery, the assumption is that it's some kind of critique of pop culture in one way or another. Um, with cause that isn't there. Uh, and I think people really struggle with the idea of just a wholly affirmative object existing in the gallery. Um, and that's a new experience for many people. I think it's very appealing to um, collectors and very alienating to people who have this expectation that there is social critique in the work. Great. Does anyone have a question while we're, we're all here in such an intimate setting? The questions weren't mic'd at the event, so let me quickly summarize each uh, before the answer. The first question was, is there going to be a portfolio like the Theaster Gates portfolio in every issue of Art in America? That's a great question, thanks. We, um, we definitely want to encourage artists to use the printed page as a medium. Um, and really think about what this medium can offer specifically, uh, distinct from everything else. Um, it's something that Art in America has done in the past, uh, and I think we want to dig into it a lot more. Um, I mean, honestly, I'd love to fold uh, a print into most issues, um, which is something that used to happen in the 60s and 70s. Um, so yeah, definitely, we want to do that. The next question was concerned with the new design elements that would help the reader navigate through the magazine. Right. There's, there's quite a lot of what designers would call wayfinding elements um, within the magazine. Um, so this is supposed to help people dive into the material in different ways. We want to create many points of access and we want people to understand where they are in the book at all times. Um, this is distinct, I think, from how most art publications function. Um, if you, you know, we surveyed, of course, like what a lot of our competitors were doing and tried to understand where they were coming from. And art publications generally have a fairly aloof design um, that doesn't always let you dive in in a different way. Um, so we made a very deliberate choice to go against that convention um, to create a magazine that is using, you know, borrowing techniques from all sorts of different genres of publication so that we could better serve the readers. The next question asked about my vision for art news media and whether the world needed a print magazine for art. Uh, I, the world definitely needs a magazine and I think one of the things that um, uh, Penske in its broadest iteration of 18 different uh, brands 
has discovered is that there are a lot of different ways to do media, uh, but almost all of them, some of the uh, brands at Penske have no uh, print uh, aspect. Some of them have a, a longstanding uh, a print publication that's you know equally as old as Art in America or Art News, both publications born in the very beginning of the 20th century, um, but have grown far beyond that in terms of what they produce uh, digitally. Uh, the importance of the magazine is to do what you can't do anywhere else but print. And I think Will sort of put that perfectly. There are things that you can do to reproduce images, to reproduce ads, that uh, work incredibly well in print and are not nearly as effective uh, digitally. Uh, at the same time, we have a relationship with uh, writers and with uh, artists and uh, 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 broader range outside of Art in America, a broader range of both institutions and other people involved in the art world that we want to be able to create media for. Uh, the whole purpose of media is to, to have a connection, to be able to either actively or passively engage in something that is important to you. Um, some of Penske's other brands are focused on fashion, music, and entertainment. Uh, I don't think art can be reduced to fashion, music, or entertainment, but the intersections between those other areas and the level of interest and fascination in art from people in the fashion, music, and entertainment businesses is quite high. So in, in, in one sense, there is a missing element of covering the art world in its broadest sense in a way that many more people can be engaged in actively or passively. And what we are trying to do, I wouldn't yet call it a vision, but in the three different um, entities that we have, Art in America, which is focused on artists and to some extent institutions, and Art News, which covers this sort of broad uh, uh, world of people interested in the art uh, world and its comings and goings, some of the collectors and, you know, we're about to have the uh, top 200 list come out for uh, Art News. An art market monitor is meant to focus entirely on the market. Not that any one of those things is the whole of the elephant, but each one should be uh, addressed on its own terms. And having this kind of wingspan from the artists as artists to the market as market, and in between being able to uh, cover art news a little bit in the way that Rolling Stone co covers music or uh, Variety covers uh, entertainment or Women's Wear Daily covers fashion so that people who are obsessive can read every bit of it and people who are passive can get the thing they need to know to feel like they're engaged and involved uh, uh, is the goal or the uh, vision. Uh, the statistic I like to cite with all of this is something like 850 million people every year go to a museum in the United States of America, which is a number greater than go to sporting events. We have ESPN, we have Sports Illustrated, we have a lot of media that covers sports. We don't really have a lot of media that covers art and the art world. And that's a, a big field for us to play in. We just have to sort of get in there and start playing. An audience member wanted to know what we thought about the trend of large galleries sponsoring their own magazines like Gagosian or Hausenworth's Ursula. Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and I think it speaks to you know, what Marion was just talking about. There is a, a huge potential audience for this kind of publishing, and I think galleries are rushing in to fill um, essentially 
you know, a, a vacuum there. Um, I think uh, it becomes our responsibility then to create sharp distinctions between what independent critical writing is and what a gallery publication is. Um, so this is a, a challenge for us. I think one version of Art in America in the past was sort of reporting on what was going on in the art world, giving people an overview. Um, I don't think that uh, is enough anymore um, because you have these other more lifestyle gallery publications that are doing that kind of thing. Um, and so we need to um, become, we need to emphasize that we are an independent critical voice. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I think actually, you know, uh, if you go to an intersection, you'll see four gas stations, one on each corner. They all do better because of the existence of the one on the opposite uh, corner. One of the things that I think happened over the last, uh, call it 12 years, when we had a bit of a crisis in media and how to pay for it and who could support it uh, and all, and this transition from print to digital, is that we lost some of the vibrancy uh, of the media. I don't think it really matters whether it comes from a gallery publication, uh, a good writing is good writing, and it has to justify itself no matter who pays for it and who publishes it. It, it is an advantage for us to be independent. It is an advantage for us to cover and produce actually a great deal more um, content than uh, galleries do. Uh, but I think the more that they do, the better for uh, all of us. The final question asks for a brief description of the new back page feature that closes out Art in America. The, the fun back of book section. Yeah, we um, actually, actually, my colleague Leanne, who's here, is uh, spearheading uh, the back page, which is called Hands On, and it's about it's essentially profiling um, the people who touch the art, um, the art handlers, conservators, um, who work with this material every day. Uh, who we all know, who have tremendous insights about um, what art is, what it should be, how the art world works. So um, we thought it would be a great idea to give them a platform um, to speak to us. So yeah, it is a really fun section. You can hear um, in some of these interviews like their wild stories of working all night to get Art Basel of Miami Beach set up and then driving back to New York in the same day or whatever. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be a really fun section. Um, you learn about all of the little niches that um, exist in our world. It's 10 o'clock, and I don't want to keep you all from the fun of your day. Yeah. So we're going to end it here, but we're all around. Happy to answer questions and anything you have. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 